Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. We maintain the peace through our strength. Weakness only invites aggression. Trust, but verify. Well, I've said it before, and I'll say it again. America's best days are yet to come. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. This week, Congressman Andy Kim from New Jersey's 3rd District joins Reaganism. Before being elected to Congress in 2018, Congressman Kim worked as a public servant under both Democrats and Republicans, serving in the Pentagon, State Department, the White House, and in Afghanistan. Congressman Kim, Democrat, won a district that President Trump took by six points in 2016. Congressman and Roger discussed the war in Afghanistan, his public criticism of China's human rights violations, and the congressman's direct service approach to politics. If you enjoy the conversation, remember to subscribe to Reaganism wherever you listen to podcasts, and we hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Congressman Kim, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to see you. You're coming to us from uh, the great state of New Jersey. Well, that's right. Yeah, I'm here in New Jersey in my district, and uh, and we're just eager for the, the the warmer weather to get here. Yeah, well, we're, we're on the cusp of it. Looking forward to it for sure. Uh, COVID is difficult under any circumstances, but uh, during the cold of winter, it's particularly difficult. Um, I'm just looking forward to having my three-year-old and my five-year-old be able to run around outside and burn off some of that energy. So that, that's my main interest as a parent for the warmer weather. Amen. You and, and parents across the country, me included. Um, you know, you've just got a great background and story. Uh, and preparing for this, I learned something surprising to me, which is you are only the second Korean American, as far as I, I saw, uh, forget maybe on your website or another website, elected to the US Congress, and the first uh, Korean American elected as a Democrat to the Congress. Uh, one, do I have that correct? And two, why? What, what, what took so long? That's entirely surprising to me. Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. That was the second Korean American ever. Um, it'd been about 20 years since the first. Uh, and so there were zero Korean Americans in Congress for, for two decades um, and, until I was able to win in 2018. And, I, you know, I, I, I struggle to, th- to think through this in terms of, you know, why it is. But, you know, I, I think part of it is just... Um, you know, there's a, there's a lot that needs to happen to just continue to, to show the Korean American community the importance of getting engaged in politics, uh, of really making sure that we understand that, you know, politics isn't just this tribal clash between parties. It's it's how we improve our health care. It's, it's what got, you know, immigration rules to, to change so that Koreans can immigrate to this country. It's the, you know, it is politics, is the, the education system that that my parents uh, were excited about in New Jersey that got me and my sister a great public school education. You know, so just trying to make sure we're connecting that better is, is important. And beyond that, you know, not only am I only the second Korean American ever, but uh, I represent a district that's, you know, less than 3% Asian American. You know, I think that was a really big step as well as showing that Korean Americans and Asian Americans that that we can represent not just districts in our country that have large Asian American population, but we can fundamentally represent anywhere. Uh, and we can be that kind of voice and have that kind of connection. And I think that that was a really exciting 
um, experience for me to go through as well. Has the Korean American community embraced you? Is it organized now? Do you see others uh, kind of more focused on holding public office? Because the Korean American community is, uh, is a very proud community. It's very well organized. Uh, the Korean American community is, is so accomplished in terms of integration in, in the US and the contributions they've made. Um, you know, tell us about kind of th that community, how you've led it and, and they've embraced you in this role. Well, look, I, I, you're absolutely right. You know, it's a very vibrant and exciting community. There definitely are ties around the country, but they can be strengthened. And that's certainly something that we're trying to see. But we are seeing a lot of Korean Americans all over the country stepping up into different roles and, and running for office or, get, or getting engaged in, in public service in different ways or being leaders of different industries. And now, you know, uh, we have a, an additional three more Korean Americans uh, that were joining Congress in this last, uh, after this last election. And they, we now have four Korean Americans in Congress, um, two from California, one from Washington State, and, and me on the East Coast. So uh, yeah, I think we, we are seeing that kind of strength of, of engagement, and hopefully that's going to be able to continue to grow and get stronger. What's great about it, it's a diverse uh, community, right? There are Republicans and Democrats as well, men and women. Um, but certainly if you have four, now you can set up your own caucus. I mean, the Congress, if there's two people, you can set up a caucus. So you're going to have a really strong caucus of uh, Korean Americans, right? No, that's absolutely right. It, it's key. And I, I, try, to, I try not to, to make it seem like I, I paved the way for all, the other three. But, <laughs> I, I, but I feel like, you know, maybe I got a, two more years on them in Congress. So maybe I can uh, be the, the dean of that caucus that we end up putting it together. But, but no, look, we have a great relationship and there's a lot of issues that we need to work on. And to your point, uh, you know, Democrats or Republicans, it's about getting things done. And, and that's what the Korean American community certainly understands. So your, your district, as I understand it, uh, includes um, kind of the Philly suburbs and you know, Southern Jersey and extends to the Jersey shore. Uh, did I get that right? That's right. Yeah, that my my district is uh, is exits four to seven on the turnpike. I think that helps people if they've gone through. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's uh, really stretches from all the way from the, the Philly suburbs of Delaware River out to the Jersey Shore. Uh, it's where I grew up. It's the district where I went to kindergarten. So it's it's a real honor to be able to serve it now in Congress. And, and is the shore a big part of your life growing up? I mean, it, it's South Jersey that seems to be the the the, the must do thing in, in the summers. Yeah, down the shore. Everyone goes down the shore. And, and you know, just uh, it, it was a huge part of my life. Uh, and it's I'll, I'll be honest, it's, it's so wonderful to be able to share that with my kids uh, and, and just have them really be able to enjoy that. It just I don't know. It's very idyllic in that way. And I feel really blessed to to have it so close by and to represent it and to, to go out there and to be able to walk along the beach uh, on July 4th weekend and, and pretend like I'm working. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the, uh, the, uh, it's, it's, been, it's been really good to be able to have that kind of experience and to, to try to represent such diverse communities within my own congressional district. Well, I don't think there's any doubt about your hard work. Obviously, your, your first election was, was very close and required a lot of hard work. Uh, and, and, and your own story. I mean, you are uh, a Rhodes Scholar. Um, you, don't, you don't get to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship by, uh, I don't know, exhausting all your weekends on the Jersey Shore. So um, what did you study over there and, and what was your dissertation on? So I did uh, a doctorate in international relations at Oxford, uh, focused on U.S. 
uh, U.S. policy to the Middle East in particular, but, you know, mostly just really looking at just use of force. You know, when, when did the United States just determine that they needed to use force uh, internationally, both in terms of military engagements or humanitarian interventions, and really just try to dissect the decision-making process. How does the National Security Council and, and that effort and mechanism come up with that decision to be able to then send service members into harm's way? I was very interested in just understanding how those values and those interests are weighed and how we try to calculate that. Now, I know you're very thoughtful on those subjects and I, I wanna jump into them a bit, uh, but did you stumble upon that in college? Was it 9-11 that got you to focus on that set of issues? Obviously, questions of use of force, particularly in the Middle East, really animated not just the world of policymakers or lawyers uh, in the early 2000s, but you know, that was a live issue and debate on campuses and captured the headline almost every day in major newspapers. Yeah, you know, for me, uh, I actually went into college thinking that maybe I would try to become an astronaut or something like that. I was, you know, really interested in, 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 in science and other issues. And then I was a sophomore in college when September 11th happened. And uh, it certainly hit us all, all across the country. Uh, but being from Jersey, you know, it, it felt like it, it really hit at home. And so for me, I remember on September 11th, uh, seeing what had happened and just realizing that, like, I don't know anything about Afghanistan or the Taliban or Al Qaeda and, you know, all these names that were being said, I'm just like, what is happening? Like, I don't understand what's going on and why, why we were attacked. So it, it really just became a personal mission, you know, being part of that generation that, that experienced that at such a pivotal moment in our own lives personally, you know, the fact that I was in college and, and was trying to decide what to do with my life and what path to go down, it had such an enormous impact between Afghanistan and the Iraq war. Um, so I, I really wanted to engage, but when I saw the policies that, that unfolded, it made me understand that, that not only do I want to engage on these issues, but I want to, you know, hopefully put myself in a position where I can be one of the people in the room and, and to be the kind of person that can help uh, help think that through for the United States on these monumental foreign policy decisions. So not only was it a commitment to study it, but it was a commitment to go into government and to go into diplomacy and to, to serve my country. Which of course you did, and, and you served in the National Security Council. Um, there you worked on issues related to Iraq and Afghanistan. Indeed, you traveled and, 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 and worked the Af Afghanistan-Iraq policy in Iraq and Afghanistan. Tell us a little bit about that. How much time did you spend uh, in each of, you know, at the time we called them theaters? Yeah, well, look, you're right. I mean, I spent, um, you know, I worked on Iraq and Afghanistan almost exclusively during my time in government for uh, for maybe about eight, eight years or so, eight, nine years uh, working in government. And and this was something that I, I was building upon. You know, my, my doctorate was about U.S. policy to Iraq, in uh, the Middle East. So this was something that I was drawing upon my experience on. I, I had a lot of experiences there that I never would have imagined. You know, I, I was working in Afghanistan as a strategic advisor to the four-star commander out in Kabul, Afghanistan under General Petraeus and General Allen. Uh, I, was do, I was there on the 10th anniversary of September 11th. And I remember just standing there at, at, a, at a memorial service, just thinking like, wow, I could never have imagined that 10 years ago when I heard about September 11th that I would 
10 years later be in Afghanistan, you know, tr uh, working on this issue. And then same type of, of experience when, when, uh, when I was working at the National Security Council, working on the counter ISIS fight, I was the Iraq director and helped coordinate the, the initial responses uh, in the war against ISIS. And I found myself in the, in the Oval Office, in the Situation Room, advising the president when it came to the, the genocide at Sinjar Mountain and trying to protect the Yazidis, which was the first time that we used force uh, you know, in Iraq against ISIS. Uh, you know, who would have thought that I would have that experience when just, I guess it was, you know, a decade earlier, I was, um, you know, watching our, our U.S. response to the 2003 Iraq war. So these were just monumental experiences that, that really, um, you know, shook the foundation of our country, but also affected my own thinking about foreign policy. And to have been able to serve in those ways, both in theater, as well as at the White House, at the Pentagon, at the State Department, um, you know, I've seen it from a lot of different lenses, and I try to bring that with me going forward. Do you have? I mean, and, and now, 10 years after that briefing the president and, you know, on, on Iraq uh, or dealing, you mentioned, you know, 10th anniversary of Afghanistan uh, in, in 2011, here you are in the U.S. Congress knocking upon the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and uh, we're still having debates about that conflict in Afghanistan, what the U.S. commitment ought to be, how many forces uh, should we maintain in Afghanistan, if we should have any forces at all. It's been a live debate uh, for this administration, that is the Biden administration. Of course, it was live during the Trump administration. Jump forward to today. What is your view on Afghanistan? Uh, do you think we should maintain a presence? Right now, it's about 2,500 troops to carry out what many describe as a counterterrorism mission to make sure that the Taliban or other terrorists can't plan attacks against the homeland. What's your view on that? Yeah, you're absolutely right. This is something that I, I frame up in that, in that kind of way. I, you know, I was in Afghanistan. I went on, on a congressional delegation there uh, at the end of 2019, just before the pandemic really set in and, and stopped our ability to travel. And I remember going out there and getting, you know, go, go into the embassy and the and the NATO, uh, you know, base that I worked at uh, across the street. I got briefed in the same room uh, that I used to work in. I, I was the one that used to flip slides for the congressional delegations, and now you know, I'm in that Herat room getting the briefing. And it was a surreal experience of just recognizing that, like, wow, like we are still here, and we are still so far away from. Um, from a lot of the goals that we set out from 10 years earlier, 20 years earlier. Uh, I really struggle with this debate. Uh, you know, there is no clear cut answer. And if anyone tells you that they know exactly what to do, um, you know, they are approaching this uh, without the kind of humility that we need to after, you know, 20 years of, of, of uh, you know, loss of life and, and, and spending uh, enormous amounts of money. Um, I do try to focus in on the core mission. Uh, you know, the core mission of preventing an attack against the homeland. And when we see where Al-Qaeda is now and ISIS Khorasan, I think that there's, you know, we've decimated these groups. We can't take anything for granted and we should make no assumptions about uh, whether or not they can reconstitute as we've seen ISIS certainly be able to do so in past years. Um, but I do want us to, to bring this war to an end. Uh, I want us to try to figure out what steps we can take to maintain some type of, of 
of, of CT platform. Um, I think that in particular from my experiences, having some type of overflight uh, capabilities is so incredibly important. That was one of the biggest problems that we lost in Iraq uh, in our ability to, to monitor and, 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 and keep ISIS at bay. Um, I'm worried about what's going to happen to our intel operations. You know, we really bring down the, the military side and, and whether or not that'll create too many blind spots. Um, but I'm all and I'm also worried about, uh, you know, any type of, of, of challenges when it comes to the degradation of, of the Afghan security forces. Uh, if in the event that, that we do draw down, what does that do in terms of our train, advise and assist efforts? But I, I do want us to try to to bring this to a close. Uh, have, uh, you know, as much of this transferred over to the civilian side as possible. Um, but I have not come up with a final decision in terms of my own mind about, you know, what the number should be and what that timeline is. I'm trying to be thoughtful about it, both in the work that I do on the Armed Services Committee, as well as the Foreign Affairs Committee. Well, no question. You're, you're, you're thoughtful about that. I know uh, from working with you on other issues, uh, that's really one of, uh, kind of your signature things you bring to every discussion is your thoughtfulness. Um, one more on Afghanistan and we'll some other topics. We did recently completed the Reagan National Defense Survey we were talking about before we start on the show uh, in February. And we ask every year, this is the third year, uh, American views on the war in Afghanistan. And specifically the question was about troop presence. And the majority of those polled actually support sustaining or increasing. Uh, so you have to combine, there are three options. You can reduce, you can maintain, or you can increase. The majority support either increasing or sustaining true presence. Um, what do you hear from your constituents, your district in New Jersey on this subject? Are they following it? If they, they talk about endless or forever wars? So I remember I, I, I came back from that, that trip to Afghanistan in late 2019. And um, <clears throat> I wasn't allowed to speak about this trip prior to me going. But as soon as I came back, I put out a notice for an in-person town hall five days later after I returned back to talk about Afghanistan, talk about what next. We had about three or 400 people show up to this town hall with only five days notice uh, in my district. And it was, it was all about Afghanistan. It was extraordinary to see the kind of engagement that people had. Now, granted, my district is a district with a military base. Right. Uh, so, um, you know, McGuire Dick's first. Uh, yeah, Fort Dix, a lot of people have come through these areas as they're getting deployed uh, overseas. Um, so, you know, national security is a local issue in our area. But that being said, um, the kind of engagement that people had, their, their thirst to know about what was happening, um, it was important. And I, I, what I take away from that is, yes, yes, people want to bring this war to an end. Uh, they want to make sure, you know, when I was out there in Afghanistan, I met, uh, you know, I met a young service member out there who was in diapers on September 11th. You know, we need to bring this to an end and have some sense of that. Um, but we, but they, they were very much understanding still of uh, if we do have real concerns when it comes to uh, the threat of terrorism. Um, that at that time, a year ago, the threat of ISIS Khorasan was greater than it is now. Um, for me to be able to explain to them what that threat is, who are, who is this group, why are they, uh, you know, why are they engaged in the activities that they have? The more we can be upfront and transparent with the American people about what is happening there, um, the more we bring them into this debate and discussion about what happens next, the better. Uh, and I think that that's something I learned from my time at the White House, 
we could have done better in explaining the fight against ISIS and some of the other things that we can do. So I just urge everyone in the White House, in the executive branch, in Congress, to be very forthright with the American people right now. One of the things you are saying and describing your thinking about Afghanistan, and it's, you said, quote, there, there's no clear-cut answer. Um, I think that's true when it comes to Afghanistan and many other national security problems and policy problems more generally. For Congress and congressmen, they generally don't talk about the graves. It's, it's an institution that generally tries to, or not tries to, but it tends to speak things in, in, in absolutes. Uh, we glossed over this in your bio. Why would a thoughtful policy person who had great success as a Oxford Rhodes Scholar doctorate, you know, gets a job in the National Security Council's briefing the president, just go on to a think tank or take even more senior jobs and other administration posts? Why go to the US Congress where the nuance and all the gray that you're clearly so capable of articulating is something that is not necessarily appreciated and certainly uh, oftentimes doesn't get you elected? Well, well the answer for why I, I decided to go and, and try to, to win a seat in Congress is, is, is simple, actually. It's because I became a dad. And uh, once, I, once my, my first son was born and as we were expecting our second son, uh, I feel like everything changed for me, and, and suddenly, uh, and childcare is really hard. <laughs> childcare is really hard. Childcare is really hard, and and just you know these issues about you know healthcare and education and and all these other issues that that I cared about but didn't work on directly. It it came to life in a way that that was scary for me as a father, just trying to think about what's going to happen next for our nation. And so that was, you know, that was a big part of it is that I think for me, um, I, I wanted to, to find that voice and wanted to challenge myself to take on new issues and new challenges. And also I, I really took on board this idea of just wanting to understand service in a different way. I, I worked in Congress only briefly as a staffer, and I, I worked under a Republican senator, Senator Luger, when he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. And, you know, he taught me a lot about just how to engage and how to craft bipartisanship. And, you know, he knew I was a Democrat, I knew he was a Republican, but, you know, we, we got to work well together and I appreciated that he took me under his wing. But beyond that, uh, he really just showed me the love of what it means to, to, to love serving the, the people in that kind of direct way. You know, the way that he talked about serving his constituents in Indiana uh, was just, uh, it didn't, never left me. And for me to have a chance to be able to represent my home district where I went to kindergarten and to have this chance to serve. I mean, I'll tell you, there's not a day that goes by where I don't recognize that I work a job whose job description is written in the Constitution of the United States. Yeah. And that is a deeply humbling experience. Yet yeah, that institution that obviously is the Constitution places first, uh, Article One, is not a popular institution. And many think for good reason, because partisanship runs deep, division uh, seems to define it. How is someone like you who comes from a district that is purple, right? Not decidedly red not decidedly blue, a personality that just in our conversation so 
clearly, you know, not somebody who is, uh, you know, using a megaphone and, and, and engaging in, 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 in negative uh, politics. Where are you finding a home in, in the institution? So uh, you're right. I mean, I, I represent a district, a district that uh, President Trump won twice. Uh, he won my district last November. I'm one of only seven Democrats left in the country that represents a district that Trump won. Um, and, uh, you know, the, I, and you're right. I, I'm someone who didn't grow up like really th that political. You know, I never really grew up, uh, you know, talking to my parents about elections or campaigns. It just didn't really come up much in, in my household. Um, I really do consider myself a, a public servant first. Uh, I'm somebody who got my start under the Bush administration as an as a entry level uh, officer at, at USAID and working in that kind of capacity. Um, and uh, so I, my entire time in the executive branch was as a career public servant, not as a political appointee. Um, you know, I, and I really saw myself in that kind of vein. And because I was in national security, I didn't really, I didn't really engage in or talk about politics. I very much felt like, you know, the last place that partisan politics belongs is in national security. Um, so uh, I, I wasn't sure how I would, how I would like Congress. When I came, when I came in 2019, I wasn't sure whether or not it would be a place that I would, would enjoy working and whether or not uh, I could find my way around. What I'll tell you is that, you know, a little over two years later, um, I really do love this job. And I do feel like there's a way for me to do this job on my own terms. Yes, I get pulled into some things and issues and other ways uh, that, that go about things differently than I like to. And, you know, the, there's, there's certainly not, it's not a job where I love every aspect of it. But um, I do love the direct service aspect to my constituents, especially during a pandemic, our ability to provide, you know, personal protective equipment or support for small businesses was so important. And on top of that, like, look, I, I think that, what I see in my district is that there is a hunger for a kind of politics that is grounded in public service. There is, you know, when I talk about how I worked under both Republicans and Democrats, when I start my town halls by saying, whether you voted for me or not, you're my boss, that kind of approach, trying to focus on the humility and the decency and the civility, it still exists. That still exists. And there's a, there's an, you know, I know it feels so foreign in, in the hyper-partisanship that we live in now, but I really try to show my district that there is a different way that we can engage. And, and I've really taken on that mission uh, to heart. And it's something that I want to keep pushing forward on. I'm going to pivot a little bit uh, to something you've really uh, taken the lead on and engaged in over the past over time in the Congress. We worked on it a little together with the Reagan Institute. And that is uh, China. Um, of late, you've really been focusing on human rights, um, particularly Chinese human rights violations, uh, Hong Kong acti uh, activists uh, coming to their cause. Um, you've had kind of extensive tweets on, on some of this. Uh, tell me about why that's become a focus and, and perhaps why that is something that uh, you're leading, uh, becoming a leading voice on in, in the Congress and the Democratic Caucus. So, uh, you know, for me, uh, I, I really, see that this question of what is the United States relationship to China, I really see that as being the defining question of the next you know, half century, if not longer. I mean, it's such a critical aspect to it. And I know a lot of people understand, you know, that is not news for people in national security. We, under, we all understand the, the fundamental challenges that arise from that. So 
uh, I am trying to engage in that uh, and be thoughtful about how we approach that type of relationship because whether we want to call it a you know near peer competition or the rise of great power competition once again or however we want to define it, um, you know this is something that uh, that is going to be critical and has been critical. The way I see it is yes, I've engaged, I've talked about Hong Kong and different aspects of of um, the, the challenges that we see with China, and and certainly I I I, I have an angle of this about. Uh, human rights and and the treatment of of people um, in China or anywhere else, but a lot of it also just comes down to this fundamental fundamental question of can we trust China? Can we trust them when we're engaged with them on any number of issues? So when I see promises broken when it's about Hong Kong or other issues, it raises that fundamental question not just about Hong Kong or Taiwan or about um, you know, what's happening elsewhere in the Asia Pacific theater. But it's also about just what does a, the handshake of the Chinese government mean these days? And I think that that's so important when, when it comes to all the other issues that we're engaged in, whether it's about our negotiations on trade or our negotiations on climate or our engagements on uh, AI and technology and cyber uh, about, you know, any number of other efforts. So th that is where where I've been trying to start this conversation with my district and with people is just, you know, where do we start from in an understanding how we engage with China? Who's on the other side of that table? You know, I've noticed that you've been kind of focusing on, Lisa, in terms of your public outreach uh, with the personal stories. And I want to get that in a second, specifically about Joshua Wong. Um, but you mentioned all the different ways uh, that you think if, you know, we're engaging with China, you know, that relationship is so complex, and so deep, politically, economically, security, and the like. Um, but Americans are really concerned on all fronts. And in this survey, the Reagan National Defense Survey, it shows that it's such a bipartisan area of concern. For the first time, uh, we released this last week, that Americans feel that China is the country that poses the greatest threat to the United States ahead of Russia, ahead of North Korea, ahead of Iran, which of course you understand each of those present significant threats to the United States. And the concerns are multifaceted. It includes human rights violations, theft of technology, debt held by the Chinese. Um, on human rights though, that seems to be one that you're, you're, you, you focus a lot on recently. Tell us about Joshua Wong. And, and the personal story and why that's been an area of focus for you? Well, look, you know, for me, um, what I found really, uh, really illuminating when I look at across the board, um, you know, who's trying to step up and, and have their voices heard. And that's, you know, also about Burma. It's about a lot of the other, you know, hot, hot points and, uh, and hot spots that we see around the country, around the world. And what I, what I find really illuminating about some of these stories um, is that it's 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 really the the youth that is stepping up a lot, and, and I think that that's what I'm trying to lift up in in different uh, areas. It's just I, I find that that's that's something that we often underestimate and and undervalue. I you know from my experience out in the Middle East, for instance, um, you know we saw huge populations under the age of 18, you know, many countries in the Middle East, over 50% of their population was under the age of 18 or under the age of 20. 
uh, that kind of youth bubble or movement that we've been seeing um, all around the world is something that I think is really coming up to a climax real soon, a crescendo that we've been seeing building. And I saw that you know, in the activism in Hong Kong, I see that in Burma right now and elsewhere. So when I lift up these different stories um, and, and, and engage, that's because that gives me something tangible to look at and engage in terms of what is the actual feeling on the ground. Um, I never want to sort of just parachute in myself and just try to, uh, you know, just try to impose my own thoughts upon a situation. I try to look at it through the lens of, of the youth and try to use that as a way to gauge, um, you know, where's the energy right now? Yeah, I mean, we had an opportunity um, not too long ago to have uh, Natan Sharansky on our show, well-known Jewish Soviet dissident. Um, and the Reagan administration, particularly President Reagan, had, had a close relation with him, so much so that it really animated um, the early um, outreach and, and bilateral talks between the United States and Soviet Union. You may be familiar with this. And that was not only carried out by President Reagan, but also uh, by Secretary Schultz. And this was referred to by Secretary Schultz as, as linkage, linking human rights to the other great power issues, whether it's you know, economic issues and military issues. Do we do that enough? Are we doing that enough with the Chinese? Do you think that the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense that are engaging uh, with uh, counterparts on the Chinese side, are they uh, doing engaging in linkage and, and making the human rights issue uh, uh, kind of top of the list? Well, look, it's a balance there. And it's one that, um, you know, I think we need to keep working on. Uh, it, our, when it comes to our relationship with China, it really is, you know, this question about strategic co cooperation and strategic competition, trying to find the areas in which uh, we have our strategic uh, advantage and our leverage and kind of honing in on that. I do think that you know human rights is a big part of that. I, I think it's about you know us understanding what values that we support and what values we want to push forward. That is something that is core to who we are as a country. Um, that's certainly a big part of it. But um, we do need to make sure that we're looking at this in a much more nuanced way. Um, that this is not the only metric and bar by which we engage with China and engage with any country for that matter. So, you know, for me, um, trying to find that, that kind of, of precision um, is something that we're gonna need when it comes to how we move forward with China because there's so many pitfalls and so many strengths that they have that we need to make sure that we are prepared for, um, which is why it's just so important that we, we have that kind of strategic overlook guiding our actions um, which frankly, we, we have not been particularly good at when it came to you know, a lot of issues, especially in the Indo-Pacific. Um, there's a lot that we struggle with to understand you know, what are our strategic interests there when it comes to North Korea or the Korean Peninsula, the first island chain uh, and, and elsewhere. So there's a lot there that we need to make sure that we're really pulling forward in a real uh, way. We, we had a, a Uyghur American activist recently uh, on this show highlighting persecution of that community in China. Uh, one of the issues that's alive and will no doubt become more an area of focus for you and other members of Congress is the upcoming Winter Olympics in China in 2022. Do you think the U.S. should participate? 
I haven't made up my mind just yet. You know, that is something that I was talking to some some folks earlier today about in terms of, you know, where we should go. Because, look, I mean, I think one of the biggest uh, weaknesses that, that China has or one of the, the areas of vulnerabilities that they have is about their international image, you know, about the, you know, the reputation that they're trying to cultivate. And when we see just the atrocities that are happening uh, with the Uyghurs, when we see the other problems that are happening, um, you know, I think China needs to know that, you know, they cannot just... Uh, you know, always get away with things that they have to understand where the accountability is on the international system. But I, I think what's important is that whatever happens, whatever we engage on in the U.S., that it, it happen in a multilateral way. So what, if we are going to move forward with that kind of action or any other action, we need to do it as a coalition. Yeah, but it's probably one of those things where everybody's watching what the other person is doing. I mean, you know, you know, U.S. leadership at the end of the day. You need a first mover, maybe. Who's going to jump in first, and, and then others will join, but nobody wants to be perceived, particularly when it comes to China. I mean, there's a, a new, uh, I know you follow this stuff, report that came out of the U.K. maybe today or the day before on their new uh, defense strategy, and they go to great pains not to call China an adversary. It's, you know, they, they, they use the language of competitor, which is okay, although they seem to put the Russians in the category of adversary, somehow downgrading the significance of the, of the threat. You know, it's these types of things that I think others feel more comfortable calling it like it is, identifying, you know, the wrongs uh, as well as, you know, the rights or the opportunities uh, if the United States is leading. Uh, so, I mean, I take your point that you got to do in concert with others, but probably something like this is going to require the U.S. to lead. I think something that I try to think about here is, you know, how do we represent uh, our competition or our our uh, our clash with China? And and the reason why I want to be careful about it, and the reason why I, I think a coalition approach is so important, is that I don't want to have this go down the path of it being seen as just you know a, a clash of civilizations or this you know deep ideological. Uh, you know, clash uh, that, that cannot be resolved in, in anything else but sort of, a, you know, conflict or, or some other area. Like, I'm very careful not to necessarily just go down this route of saying that this is a, a new Cold War or Cold War, you know, 2.0. You know, I think that, I, you know, someone, someone mentioned this line that, that I thought really stuck with me, which is that when you, uh, when, when things go down the route of being an ideological conflict, um, primarily driven in that way, uh, it really leaves no room for compromise or some room for engagement because um, that's seen as, as just deep weakness. Um, you know, cooperation, uh, there's gonna be some areas where we need to cooperate. Um, there's gonna be lots of areas where we're gonna be competitors and compete. But um, I want us to be careful about that. I want I, us to be mindful about that. Let me pull the thread on that and perhaps we could debate this for you know, a couple of minutes here because, I mean, you could take the view that it is ideological, we could see it that way, not with the Chinese people, but with the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, clearly there's uh, a, a fundamental difference in political system between the United States, Republic and a democracy versus China, uh, their, their, their system, which is communist. And, and, and as a result, unless you're engaging, recognizing that really kind of fundamental difference in political systems, then you're really not going to be able to uh, compete in, in a way that works. I mean, that's been the shift that 
the Trump administration pursued, and, and, and much of which is, is being carried out by the Biden administration, which is recognizing that this closed you know, society uh, needs to be confronted because they're exploiting our open society. So uh, what's the hesitation with actually um, calling this, in, you know, kind of what really is an ideological division in terms of values uh, and, and political systems? And, you know, we could resolve that like the Cold War. I mean, right? Ultimately, that wasn't, uh, uh, you know, World War III in the way that people feared, but it was, it was done in a fashion where the system ultimately, you know, the democratic system prevailed. So a couple of things here. I, I don't discount what you said, and we certainly have very different, you know, different, different, different structures when it comes to our, our governance and, and a lot of other aspects of this. I'm actually just approaching this in terms of what I think is going to be um, most successful in terms of how we kind of build the kind of leverage that we need to be able to to have the kind of success and dominance that I want us to. So for me, this is more of a tactical issue. Uh, I'm looking at this in terms of you know, what is the kind of framework for our engagement with China that will be able to net us the, the widest possible uh, coalition and the strongest possible coalition? What are the types of tactics and, and efforts that we can utilize for us to be able to, to gain the kind of dominance that we want, especially in strategic markets, whether that is in innovation tech, uh, energy uh, innovation and other aspects like that. So for me, uh, I think we uh, have the upper hand over China. I think oftentimes China is portrayed uh, to be much stronger than they actually are. Uh, I think that US, we are still dominant by a good amount um, and we should use that. And we, in my opinion right now, the strength of our ability to to dominate to you know to to be successful vis-a-vis uh, -vis China is for us to be not framing this as a you know ideological first clash. There's certainly elements of that 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 will need to be addressed, but I think we can are actually in a stronger position if we look at our strategic advantages. In fact, invest significantly in new tech, new innovations on energy infrastructure and other things like that, I think that that is our best bet, is to really show the, the, the benefits of an open capitalist society uh, that is, is embracing innovation, embracing uh, you know, the, the kind of um, uh, business mindedness that we have. I think that we can showcase that without having to go over the top um, in terms of the ideology. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly we collaborate on that. You were uh, a member of the Reagan Institute Task Force on the National Security Innovation Base, and a lot of what you just described in terms of really emphasizing our strengths, our kind of the country's on, entrepreneurial spirit, our free market system, our ability to innovate. Uh, you know that report that you contributed to uh, really emphasized that was going to be uh, kind of the key element to the United States prevailing. Uh, in this competition, of course, we mean by prevailing is ultimately that we can sustain our, our the peace and, and, and our prosperity and, and bring others along with us. And you know, you've emphasized throughout this conversation the importance of, of our friends and allies, and that's what strengthens us. And I think uh, you know, that, that was emphasized in our work together and is certainly spot on. I, I want to pivot a little bit in the remaining time we have left. Um, President Biden recently, uh, in his recent remarks, uh, referenced violence against the Asian American community in the United States. Um, a lot of people weren't tracking that. Um, 
everybody agreed and, 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 and condemned it. I mean, everybody, but that was the prevailing view. I wanted to just get your perspective on it and, and uh, how the community is responding and, and, um, and anything else you have to say in terms of, do we see this as something that's rising or now it's uh, with the attention on it will decline? Uh, it's thank you for raising this, first of all, because it is important. And I'm grateful that, that President Biden and others have raised this. And this is something that we need to take seriously. Um, I've certainly seen an uptick in discrimination, uh, even directed towards myself over the last year. Uh, and it is something that's you know, deeply alarming. I think how what really- that, How did that play out you say against yourself? Yeah, you know, I've had a couple of experiences where I, I've been uh, in circumstances where people yell at me, uh, yell at, you know, not to get too close to them because they think I'm going to give them COVID because I'm Asian American. Um, you know, I've had a number of situations like that. My mother has too. I've heard it from many others. Um, just that kind of just, um, you know, racist remarks that kind of attach to that. Um, and it, it's very hurtful. It really is. And again, it just makes me very fearful about, you know, that kind of trajectory. Um, especially raising two Asian American baby boys, um, you know, what kind of experience are they, are they going to potentially have if this does not get better? So I, I think about it in those very personal terms. I also, you know, the, it was the images of, of Asian American elders getting attacked on the streets that was really what set me off a couple of weeks ago. Just, um, you know, just really felt like this was getting worse and worse. And as the light has shown on this more and more in the last couple of weeks, what we've seen is that, that this is actually much more um, pervasive of a problem than I even expected. Uh, I knew it was a problem, but I, I can't say that it's necessarily rising. What I can say is that, that the increased visibility is having more and more people step up and tell their stories or focus in on this. So we don't really have a sense yet of the, the, the magnitude of this problem and what the trajectory really is. And that's what we're asking for the resources to do, to, to be able to make it easier for people to be able to report uh, incidents, for us to be able to track that and provide the requisite resources to really understand this and, and make sure that you know, state and local officials and others, uh, both in law enforcement as well as community services and elsewhere, have proper resources to be able to help support the victims and, and other community efforts. I haven't, so those seen, are the types of things I haven't seen data either, but it seems to be that the, the uptick, to extent you know people are referencing one, is is a function of COVID and 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 fear and 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 people saying, well, COVID came from China as a result. You know, people are are, are then engaging this racist behavior. I mean, is that is that your sense? Is it a function of COVID, or do you think this pre kind of predates COVID? I think I think there that there is a, a, you know latent. Uh, and, and sort of baseline level that was existing before. I don't think it was just because of COVID in this last year. Uh, I, you know, I've certainly experienced uh, a certain amount of discrimination over the course of my life uh, that, that I think many Asian Americans can, can point to in their own experiences. Uh, but I think COVID gave uh, it sort of a front row seat uh, and it really brought it into the open. And look, yes, yes, if as the pandemic wanes, maybe some of this will wane as well. But to the point you and I just talked about, on the other hand, you know, China is now seen as perhaps the greatest threat to the United States, and that could be potentially for decades to come. Um, so if, as me, as an, as an Asian American and a, a Korean American, but raising uh, 
two kids that are half Korean, half Chinese American, um, I, I, I don't know what's going to happen next when it comes to the xenophobia that can be attached to, you know, those types of efforts. And, and so that's, you know, when I, when I raise some concerns and also want us to be thoughtful about how we frame the competition with China and how we talk about ideology or clash of civilizations, part of it is about tactics, but a part of it is also how do we do that while also making sure that we do not alienate or cast as the other, you know, Asian American populations in our own country? How do we make sure that that we don't spur a level of xenophobia that can you know, be turned back onto our own American populations simply because of the way we look or what our last name is. Um, so you know, that is something I want us to be very careful about too. No doubt, I, mean, I think surely when you, you know, perhaps if you don't find the Cold War paradigm you know, uh, applicable here, obviously that's a debate, uh, at least with respect to the Cold War, it was about communism. It wasn't about a race or ethnicity. You know, it wasn't about Russians. It was about uh, the Soviet system. And I and I and I think fundamentally the competition with China uh, should be uh, viewed uh, through that through that lens. But no doubt the concern is 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 of course you know reasonable and 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 one we ought to we ought to focus on as we take what we just discussed um, discrimination against. Asian American community and January 6th, those events on January 6th, the uh, attacks on the on the Capitol. Um, how do you respond to those who say, hey, the United States should not be in the business of leading in the world? The United States should not be in the business of confronting and competing with the China and critiquing their uh, system of government, because fundamentally that's that's where the critique is, whether you want to call it ideological or or, or something else. Um, what is your response uh, to that? How are we leading when you know you yourself are sharing uh, your own uh, experience of discrimination yourself, your community, um, and then of course um, the, the the challenges to our democracy at home uh, with the pinnacle, which was January sixth, or say the Nader. Yeah, you know I've been thinking a lot about this question over the last two months since uh, January 6th. And you know, this question about where do we go from here and how do we heal? And I, I think for me, I, I'll go back to a word I think I used earlier in this conversation, which is humility. Uh, I really do think that we need a lot more humility in our politics and in the world, the way that we work. Humility is not weakness. I'm not saying that humility leads us to, to, to downplay our strengths. Um, but rather, it, it's about where we can connect with others, both in our country as well as around this world. When I am critiquing or criticizing actions around the world in other nations, I'm not trying to come at this from a position of, of uh, moral superiority or moral high ground. Um, I'm, I'm trying to come at this from a, cent a center of actually just a coreness of, of, of what it means for us to live in a humanity. And I think that that's something that the pandemic has really hit home to me even more so, is that this was a, a threat against the very core aspect of who we are as humans. The virus did not care what our nationality was, what country we lived in. It was something that really uh, could have been something that really spurred this new sense of humanity in that way. Um, I think that's always been something that I have loved about 
this country and how this country is framed it, um, that it's of by and for the people, that the people is where it derives its power from. Our founding documents, while magnificent and powerful in their actions, were documents of extraordinary humility of people recognizing uh, that, that all men are created equal, that, you know, that these values are so core to who we are. Um, so while we are a beacon of democracy, and I hope we continue to be so, it, it's never meant to be saying that we are perfect. It was always the more perfect union that we try to, try to become. So for me, I think uh, we well, absolutely- I, I think what you've articulated is a lot of why people believe that America is exceptional, not because of, of any, you know, particular individual, right, or race, ethnicity, but in the end of the day, it's, it's the, those values and the democratic values and, and the documents that they uphold, um, you know, it's, it's the, it's the, we, the people, that's what I hear you saying. Yeah, that's right. And, and, you know, I think when we engage in that, whether it's, you know, critiquing things that we can improve here at home or things that need to be improved internationally, you know, I think we need to come at it from that type of spirit. Um, and, and, and I think that that's our, sort of where our strength comes from as a country. Well, uh, Congressman, we got to go to our lightning round because we have gone on too long. So this is the part of the uh, show where we talk, we ask you for your favorite Reagan book, your favorite Reagan speech, your favorite Reagan quote. We'll take all three, two, or just one, whatever you have. Yeah, so um, so two two things that I, I think I want to kind of uh, bring out here. One is that um, for me, as a as a as a child of uh, grew up in the '80s, um, one of my earliest memories of of a president or or really government in in general was the Challenger speech, um, and I think that that's something that that I hold very dear. I, I think I even mentioned it early in this podcast that like I wanted to be an astronaut. I wanted to go into space yeah. exploration. I grew up thinking about this and I held on to that dream well beyond you know some of my naive childhood moments. Um, and it was a lot of it was a lot of because of that speech. You know, just the empathy that he showcased uh, a his, short speech, but we all watched in classrooms and libraries, yeah. you know, across the country. Speechwriter Peggy Noonan. Yeah. So so that is, you know, that that is one that that has affected me significantly, and 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 another one, um, you know, in terms of a quote, um, you know, there's this line from uh, from a, a D-Day speech that he gave, which is um, I think very apt to the conversation that you and I have just had. But I'll I'll just kind of uh, recall it here. It's uh, it is better to be here, ready to protect the peace, than to take blind shelter across the sea, rushing to respond only after freedom is lost. And I think that that, uh, that is a line that, that really gets at this question that you and I have been grappling with today, which is about what does American engagement mean? And not just when, not just where or what form it takes shape, but when. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, and these questions of, of how do we make sure that when we do act, it's, it's not too late or too little too late. Um, and, and so that is something that I think about just the extraordinary courage that generation before us, certainly at D-Day, uh, experienced. But that, that quote of, of his is, is one, you know, that, that ready to protect the peace, I think, is, is that, that the core element of that, that, you know, I think we need to recommit ourselves to, you know, is the United States ready to protect the peace? And, and that's something that we need to make sure we really 
uh, we really grapple with and, and build out. Congressman Andy Kim, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much for being on the show. We look forward to having you back in the not too distant future. Thank you so much for having me. This was a lot of fun.